You've got shit. I've got shit. We've all got shit. So let's therapize that shit with your host, me, Joy Gerhard. Please note, I am not a therapist. I cannot and do not diagnose anyone or prescribe anything. This is just me, someone who struggles with mental illness, emotions, and intrusive thoughts, sharing what skills I've used and how I've used them. Also, trigger warning, in this podcast, I talk about sensitive topics including mental illness, suicidal ideation, self-harm, rape, childhood sexual assault, trauma, and more. I also swear here and there, so listener discretion is advised. If you're new to the podcast, some context for you. I've gotten a ton of value out of doing group therapy and watching others process their shit. In group, I can see other people's patterns and behaviors much more clearly because they aren't my patterns and behaviors, but rather they're adjacent to mine. It's such a relief. I want to share this relief with you via this podcast, wherein I practice skills while actually in the thick of shit. Each episode, I typically do an introduction and provide some context. Then I play a recording of me actively dealing with shit. This isn't me talking about psychology or theories. I'm actually in distress, having strong emotions and strong urges. You're going to hear me crying, angry, numb. But my intention is always to move through an emotion, never to stay there. So stick with me and we'll actually come out on the other side by the end of the episode. Alrighty, let's hop to it. Welcome, welcome. It has been a hot minute. Oh my God. So I'm a little behind. And part of that, <laughs> part of that is because uh, my folks and I are renovating, remodeling something. We're turning the downstairs laundry room into a laundry room slash bathroom, and we're doing it all ourselves. Uh, mostly me and my dad. So I have been learning how to plumb, learning how to replace drain lines, learning how to install supply lines, researching code, learning how to 3D model so that I can model out our existing plumbing and then model out what the replacement plumbing should be. Uh, we just poured concrete last week. I got to jackhammer for the first time a couple months back. Like, a whole host of things have been going on, so I have been focusing on that instead of on podcasting. And the, the what do you call it, the, the byproduct, the consequence, there we go, of that has been that it has been three months since I last published an episode. And I'm trying to get back to posting with a slightly more frequency. Excuses, excuses. Anyway, so the recording I'm about to play for you in today's episode was recorded on June 27th, 2022, and I'm recording this commentary on July 17th, 2023. So it's been over a year. That's how far behind I am. Anyway, the recording that I'm about to play for you from last year is me reacting to doing exposure, prolonged exposure. And you know what that means. It's time for a brief refresher on what exposure therapy is. If you want a much longer explanation of what exposure therapy is, uh, check out episode 28, where I go into it in much more detail. 
But for our intents and purposes here, we're just doing our nutshell. So prolonged exposure that I'm doing with my DBT therapist is based off of Melanie Harned's book on the DBT prolonged exposure protocol, which I've linked in the description. And the long and short of it is PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder becomes chronic and sticks around due to two main things, harmful beliefs and avoidance. Those are the things that has it persist. In my case, one of the things I have PTSD from is rape as an adult. So in that case, I'm raped, my nervous system's overwhelmed and tries to protect me, so my brain generates thoughts like men aren't safe, dating isn't safe, I need to self-harm so that my outsides match my insides, etc. And those thoughts have me avoid men <laughs> dating and riding out strong emotions. So I avoid those things, and that avoidance has me relate to those things as scary and dangerous, so I avoid them more, so I'm more afraid of them, etc., and it creates this feedback loop. Prolonged exposure basically removes the avoidance piece. I start small with things that I'm avoiding where my distress about them is like a 3 out of 10, and slowly I work up to doing the things that I'm avoiding where my distress is like a 10 out of 10. And when I'm doing exposure, I do exposure to two different things. One, I do exposure to my memories of the event, and that's imaginal exposure. And two, I do exposure to activities that I avoid, which is called in vivo exposure, which is Latin for in life, so in the course of living. But before I do exposure, I write down what my emotional state is, what I'm worried will happen during the exposure, and what my urges are. And then I do the exposure, and afterwards I write down what my emotional state is, whether the thing I was afraid of happening actually happened, and how my urges are. Sometimes the thing I'm afraid of happening doesn't happen, which is great information to tell my brain. And sometimes the thing I'm afraid of happening does happen, and I survive it and write it out, which is also good information to tell my brain. And I do this with gradually increasing intensity over many months. So uh, seven years ago now, I did exposure to my first adult rape. And now, or <laughs> a year ago when I was doing this recording, I'm doing exposure to traumatic invalidation. And so what I'm talking about at the beginning of this episode is the imaginal portion of my exposure where I am in session with my therapist describing a memory that I have of being invalidated. And I get into what that is very briefly in the recording I'm about to play for you. I'll tell you a little bit more about it here. I have a memory of a conversation I had with my dad where I had just, it had just occurred to me that I didn't know how to prevent additional sexual assaults and rapes from happening to me. I was sitting in my room reading something and I had that thought and I was like, oh shit, this could just keep happening. So I go barreling out of my room and run into my dad and I'm like, this is a thing. I'm in distress about this thing, this thought, this is very scary. And so we just start talking about it and he is trying to give me kind of common sense safety tips. You know, the stuff like don't walk alone to your car at night and don't leave your drink unattended. Don't go to a bar with people you don't know, that sort of stuff. And at some point in the conversation, he says, you know, if you leave your car unlocked in a bad part of town, that's the phrase I remember. 
But he goes on to say, and I'm not going to remember this in great detail, that if you leave your car unlocked in a bad part of town, there's a high likelihood that it's going to get broken into. So there are things you can do to change your behavior so that you're decreasing the likelihood of getting your car broken into, like parking it someplace else or not leaving it unlocked or all of these other things. And my experience of that was that it was incredibly invalidating. So that's the imaginal, the memory that I'm working through in this recording. And what I'm practicing as I'm working through this, as I'm kind of mulling it over in the recording, is I'm working on practicing acceptance. So I want to talk very briefly about acceptance before I get into the recording. Oh, but before I do that, a brief orientation. Most of the skills that I reference in this episode are from the DBT manual by Marshall Linehan. DBT stands for Dialectic Behavioral Therapy and is the therapy type that seems to work best for my brain. The DBT manual is linked in the description, both in PDF form and where you can buy it. Whenever I'm quoting the DBT manual or really anyone else's work other than my own, I turn on some reverb, a little sound effect, so that I sound like I'm at the Greenwich Royal Observatory or more accurately, the Greenwich Royal Observatory bathroom. I will be referencing handouts from several of the DBT modules in this episode, of which there are four, mindfulness, interpersonal effectiveness, emotion regulation, and distress tolerance. So when I mention a handout that I'm reading from, I'll say something like, this is from distress tolerance handout 12, or whatever, so that you can follow along if you're so inclined. So getting back to acceptance, the thing that I'm practicing in the recording. I've talked about this in previous episodes. You can find those episodes by just browsing the episode titles um, and find the ones that have acceptance in the title. Acceptance is one of those things that is probably the most useful thing for me to practice and also one of the most challenging things for me to practice. So according to Distress Tolerance Handout 11 in the DBT manual, creatively titled Radical Acceptance, uh, this is a skill for when you cannot keep painful events and emotions from coming your way. What is radical acceptance? Radical means all the way, complete, and total. It is accepting in your mind, your heart, and your body. It is when you stop fighting reality, stop throwing tantrums because reality is not the way you want it, and let go of bitterness. What has to be accepted? Number one, reality is as it is. The facts about the past and the present are the facts, even if you don't like them. Number two, there are limitations on the future for everyone, but only realistic limitations need to be accepted. Number three, everything has a cause, including events and situations that cause you pain and suffering. Number four, life can be worth living even with painful events in it. Why accept a reality? Rejecting reality doesn't change reality. Changing reality requires first accepting reality. Pain can't be avoided. It is nature's way of signaling that something is wrong. Rejecting reality turns pain into suffering. Refusing to accept reality can keep you stuck in unhappiness, bitterness, anger, sadness, shame, and other painful emotions. Acceptance may lead to sadness, but deep calmness usually follows. And finally, the path out of hell is through misery. By refusing to accept the misery that is part of climbing out of hell, you fall back into hell. I have mixed feelings about that last one especially the misery part. I don't know. I've been kind of just mulling that over, chewing it in the back of my brain for a while. Just know that if you have mixed thoughts about that one, I do too. Okay. So there are things that interfere with radical acceptance, and these are listed on Distress Tolerance Handout 11A, again, creatively titled Radical Acceptance, Factors That Interfere. 
Radical acceptance is not approval, compassion, love, passivity, or against change. Factors that interfere with acceptance. Number one, you don't have the skills for acceptance. You don't know how to accept really painful events and facts. Number two, you believe that if you accept a painful event, you're making light of it or are approving of the facts and that nothing will be done to change or prevent future painful events. Number three, emotions get in the way. Unbearable sadness, anger at the person or group that caused the painful event, rage at the injustice of the world, overwhelming shame about who you are, guilt about your own behavior. And then there's a a box for other as in other factors that interfere with acceptance. And I wrote in a lack of real understanding of what you're accepting, which is what we're going to get to in this episode, because I kind of circle around trying to figure out what the thing is for me to accept about the exposure that I'm doing. The last thing I want to mention, in several episodes, I have gone over practicing radical acceptance step by step. And I'm not going to get into that here in this episode because I spend pretty much the entire time trying to identify what the thing is for me to accept. I go around in circles for a bit. I start off by venting what I'm pissed off about. And (laughs) the first five minutes of this recording, I've probably listened to five times over the last six months and thought, no, this isn't going to make a very good episode. And so I have just not been working on the podcast. And I've been totally blocking my own way in getting the next episode out. But as I finally got my ass in gear and kept listening, continued on listening through the recording, I had a realization. Oftentimes, it takes me a while to determine what I actually need to accept. Oftentimes, I circle kind of around and around like water circling a drain before I finally land on the thing that I need to accept. And that's normal for me. I think that's part of my process of accepting, actually. And I've been judging that that is part of my process. I've been having the judgment that I should be able to just know, just rattle off what I need to accept. I've been judging that I shouldn't need to mull it over for a bit. But it turns out I kind of need to mull over it for a bit. So this recording that I'm about to play for you starts with me mulling it over for a bit before I finally hone in on what I need to practice accepting. Oh, and that's another shift in my language. Rather than saying, I need to accept X, Y, or Z, I think I'm going to start saying instead, I am practicing accepting X, Y, or Z. Because acceptance is a practice. I don't think it's ever like a destination that I can get to. Certainly not a destination that I can get to and then like sit on my laurels once I'm there. I think it's a constant practice. So it took me a while to mull over the thing that I want to practice accepting. All right, so let's get into the recording. Shoot, one more thing before I forget. A huge thank you to my Patreon supporters. I have a little group of five folks who have been so instrumental in allowing me to make this podcast, get it out. And you guys are my my little support team. So Sunny and Juicy, an anonymous donor, Andrew, as well as the OGs, my sisters, Anne and Ruth. You all are first-rate comb-tooth mackerels and are 96.8% of the reason that this podcast exists for public consumption. Thank you so very much. 
Um, you guys make a huge difference. And if you, dear listener, would like to support this podcast, the link to my Patreon is in the description. All right, so let's dive right on in here. Take it away past joy. All right, so I'm going to sound weird because I'm doing this while I'm doing stairs because I figured it's best to demonstrate skills in the actual environment that I use them in. So you're going to hear me clomping up the stairs. There's a flight of stairs kind of near my house. And today I've got my pack on with 45 pounds in it. And we're going to do the stairs 15 times. We are currently on, I think this is seven. Okay, so what are we working on? Working on acceptance. Listening to that same fucking recording of me telling the memory, having a conversation with my dad about um, having the realization that I didn't know how to prevent additional sexual assaults from happening to me. And in the course of the conversation, dad says, you know, if you leave your car unlocked in a bad part of town, for whatever reason, that memory is a trigger for reasons I still don't fully understand. But listening to his memory today, I had the thought, his understanding of his own skill level. He does not have an accurate understanding of his own skill level. How about that? He has said multiple times just in the last couple months that he thinks we can talk about anything. And I keep thinking, oh dear, you really don't know what your skill level is, do you? And to me, it reminds me of the bull in the china shop who doesn't understand why he's being escorted out of the china shop, who says, hey, I just wanted to look at the china. What's the, what's the big deal? Your china's awesome. I just wanted to look at it. And the shop owner's like, great. And you're destroying things. And then the bull going, yeah, but like there's a certain amount of destruction that can be expected in a relationship and a certain amount of like letting things go and forgiving and not sweating the small stuff and all of these other things because he's said those things what I hear when he says that is he doesn't have an understanding of the impact that he has and when he is aware of the impact that he has it occurs to him as more of a an issue on my part that I am being ungenerous unforgiving um that I am not doing the work of getting along in a relationship by letting, you know, letting the small things go. So he doesn't understand what he's doing. He thinks he's the bull, that he's just tracking a little dirt inside. He doesn't realize that he's actually, there's the train. He doesn't realize that, <laughs> he doesn't realize, <laughs> oh my God, 
It's like that fucking TikTok. Okay. Can I go now? Yes. He doesn't realize that he's not just tracking dirt in. He's also knocking over entire display cases of like Ming vases or I don't know anything about pottery or China. So I just, I don't think vases are old, so they're expensive and valuable, I guess. But he, he doesn't see that that's what he's doing. So what is there to accept? That he doesn't know, he is unaware of the impact that he's having. That he is unable to hear the impact that he's having. That he believes that the impact that he's having is minor because this has been really really fucking challenging for me is listening to him repeat that he thinks we can talk about anything and he is convinced of this fact and he's also communicated that my boundaries are actually a wall that I've put up where I'm refusing to relate to him. And I'm like, fucking hell, man. Like, I get it. I have friends who are parents who talk about, you know, they're doing the best they can. And hearing me be like, nope, we're going to put a boundary there and I'm not going to relate to you around how I feel and how I think about things because you're not reliable to validate and understand my experience. That's me talking to my dad. And my friends who are parents hear this and they're dismayed. They're like, yeah, but, you know, we love our kids. Your dad loves you. Of course he loves you. I'm like, I get that. I understand that. And he's hurting me without realizing it. He doesn't know when what he's doing is painful. He cannot hear when what he's doing is painful, like when I tell him that. And I am getting tired of having my ass absolutely handed to me. And I get people who are parents are dismayed by hearing that I have this boundary with my dad. And I'm like, I don't know what to tell you. When I have conversations with my dad, it feels like he's holding my head underwater. It is so fucking painful. And I have intense derealization and intense depersonalization. I don't know if I'm real. I don't think I'm making any noise. I feel like I'm a ghost. I feel invisible. I feel completely silenced. This is a shitty experience for me. It does not help my mental health, which is why I'm doing exposure to it because I want to relate to my dad. I want to have conversations with my dad about how I'm feeling and about what I'm thinking. And so far he has not demonstrated that he is able to have those conversations without invalidating me. Said without all the double negatives, so far he has demonstrated he is only able to have those conversations while invalidating me. 
and his understanding of what validation is is also extremely limited. When he has articulated what he's learned about validation, he says, you know, I can listen, I can not share my opinion, I can keep my thoughts to myself and just hear you out. And again, I don't know if I've used this analogy on the podcast, but I've definitely used it in therapy. It's like the kid who saw a lifeguard on TV throw one of those life rings, those life preservers, to a drowning person and goes, hey, I know how to save people. You throw a round thing at them. Here's a donut. Here's a toilet seat. And like it's, it's cute, right? It's nice that he wants to help. And that is not helpful. He has missed the most important aspect of what those life preservers do, i.e. that they are buoyant, that they float. And the problem is this little kid is convinced he's helping because he's like, hey, I'm doing the thing, right? And having your support system be convinced that they're supporting you means that they're going to get in the way. They're going to they're going to think, hey, I've done my due diligence. I've done what I can do. I have helped them. And if I'm not being helped, it's a problem with me. Clearly, they don't want to stop drowning. Clearly, they don't want to live. They're just happy sitting there splashing around. Why aren't you grabbing the donut I've thrown to you? This is not interpretation, by the way. He, uh, he calls me stubbornly negative because I'm not helped by the help he offers. You know what that does? That absolves him of any responsibility to actually look at whether his help is helpful. He is allowed to believe that what he has offered is objectively helpful. And that if I'm not being helped because of the character flaw on my part. And not only that, he told everyone in my family that I'm stubbornly negative. He's told the people that he counsels on how to parent effectively. He's told them that I'm stubbornly negative. He has labeled me as this thing. He has judged me. And I'm not supposed to be hurt by that. That's not supposed to hurt. I'm supposed to just get out my vacuum and clean up the dirt that he's tracked in because that's the only damage that he's done. I mean, fuck's sake. I doubt my reality. I doubt that who I am is real. I think I'm a ghost. I think I'm invisible. So, what am I accepting? That my dad does not know when he's hurting me. And that my dad doesn't hear me when I tell him that he's hurting me. That he has not known when he's hurting me, that he has not heard me when I've told him that he's hurting me. That he 
has not helped when I've needed help. He's not had that skill when I've needed when I've needed help. And that he has not been able to hear me when I've told him that he's not helping. And that he is not currently able to hear me when I tell him he's not helping. Those are the facts. He does not change his behavior when I tell him that his current behavior is not helping and is in fact hurting. He has not changed his behavior when I've told him that his behavior was not helping and was hurting. I'm not accepting anything about the future. Because as it turns out, I don't know the future. So, another thing about acceptance that I keep forgetting is accepting my emotions about the facts. And I have not wanted to do that. So I have not been wanting to accept my feelings about the impact of dad's behavior. Because I have not wanted to be with the anger, the rage, and the grief around it. Because partially, I don't think that's real. I have the belief that my anger is not justified. It doesn't fit the facts. And I don't have my DBT manual with me right now, so I can't actually look it up. I'm reasonably certain that it does fit the facts. And I resent that. So we're gonna flash forward to future Joy, who's gonna actually check that. And she's going to confirm that it does fit the facts. And then she's gonna throw it back to me. Future Joy here. So let's look at emotion regulation handout 11, titled Figuring Out Opposite Actions. And this is a handout where there's a different page for each of the main emotions. So there's nine pages. On the anger page at the very top, it says that anger fits the facts of a situation whenever A, an important goal is blocked or a desired activity is interrupted or prevented. B, you or someone you care about is attacked or hurt by others. C, you or someone you care about is insulted or threatened by others. D, the integrity or status of your social group is offended or threatened. I think in this case, the first two apply for the the memory that I'm working through in, in exposure. An important goal is blocked. That important goal being feeling heard and understood and validated and helped by my dad. And the second one, I'm feeling hurt by my dad. His invalidation hurts. His judgment hurts when I tell him how I'm feeling and he invalidates me and then tries to help and judges me as being stubbornly negative when I'm not helped by his help. That hurts. So uh, I think anger does fit the facts. Back to past joy. Well, now that my imaginary scenario of a future joy checking the facts has confirmed that in fact my anger is justified, I do not have the belief that it is. What is that belief trying to do for me? 
why what is my body or my brain trying to do for me by telling me that my anger is not justified and that I should not feel angry should is a judgment so I'm judging my anger and I'm resisting that it's justified I think partially because like I don't want to be aware of it like when I'm in the middle of a thing in the thick of it like in the, in the thick of extreme pain like maybe the most effective thing is not to like be mindful of it maybe it's okay to check out so that I can get other shit done like I've told this story before a hike I did 20 miles developed this blister the size of a quarter on my big toe and had to keep walking because I was like halfway through this big circular loop and stopping wasn't going to make my foot get any better literally the only way to make the pain stop was to finish so I had to keep walking and I really did check out like I am pretty sure I was not mentally present for the last 10 miles of that hike I don't know if I was listening to my a podcast or music or something Consequently, I actually don't remember the pain. I know that it was painful, but I don't remember it. I know that I couldn't work at my standing desk at work. I had to sit with my foot elevated at a desk for three or four days. So, I think my body's doing that. I think it's like, don't be aware of the rage. You still you know, live with them and work on projects together and have conversations. And if I were present to the amount of rage I feel, yeah. And he has said, you know, there's certain things that when you're in a relationship, you just let go. You just, you know, let it roll off your back. You don't sweat the small stuff. When he tells me these things, I keep... What I keep hearing is, is like joy. Whatever pain you're experiencing is small stuff. So get over it. That's the thought I'm having. That's not what he's saying. At least those aren't the words he's using, but that's the thought I have whenever he says that. And as a consequence of almost 40 years of invalidation, I no longer trust you know, my gut instincts or my feelings or my thoughts as being communications about real things that are happening so when he says that don't sweat the small stuff just let things go I take that to mean that whatever pain I'm experiencing is small stuff and that I really can't trust my system my body my brain to know when I'm actually being harmed and if I'm experiencing harm, and he's not meaning to harm me, it's because I'm interpreting it wrong. 
that's crazy making. So what I realize is I need to beef up my boundary because periodically, even if I'm not talking about my emotions, my feelings, which is my current boundary with him, there are times when he talks about relating to people and the counseling that he's doing and and his beliefs around letting things go come up in those conversations and we need to stop having those conversations because I'm not able to hear that and not invalidate myself with it. Basically, I need to stop having conversations with my dad about his thoughts and beliefs around relationships. Any type of relationships relating to people and communication. Okay, new boundary. We're gonna throw this back to future joy. Alright, thank you, past joy. We are back now in the present or future or whatever. Um, so the first 11 minutes or so of the recording that I just played, I'm circling that acceptance strain, like I said in my intro. I'm mulling it over, I'm venting, I'm getting out a lot of thoughts. And then finally, about 11 minutes and 45 seconds into the recording, I start to list off what I want to practice accepting. And this is the list. That my dad doesn't know when he's hurting me. That my dad doesn't hear me when I tell him that he's hurting me. And those two are in the present tense, what is currently so. Then I say the same things in the past tense. That he has not known when he's hurting me. And that he has not heard me when I've told him that he's hurting me. Also, that he has not helped when I needed help. And that he has not been able to hear me when I've told him that he's not helping. Again, both of those are past tense. And then we do the same in the present tense. That he is currently not able to hear me when I'm telling him that he's not helping. That he doesn't change his behavior when I tell him that his behavior isn't helping, but rather it's hurting. And in the past, he has not changed his behavior when I've told him his behavior wasn't helping. It's hurting. So that was a year ago. And listening back to it, I'm noticing a couple things that aren't very effective about that list. Um, I say that I want to practice accepting that my dad doesn't know when he's hurting me and that he doesn't hear me when I tell him that he's hurting me. But those aren't actual things I can know. I have no way of knowing what my dad knows. I can't observe the knowledge part of his brain to see what information is stored there. And I can't observe what he hears or doesn't hear. I have no way of seeing what auditory processing is going on in his brain. I can only observe what I can observe, <laughs> like his behavior, what he says and what he does. Um, and because a key component of acceptance is accepting only the facts and not we're not focusing on accepting interpretations. Um, it's really important to actually hone in on what the facts are. So um, I think a more effective thing to practice accepting would be, and it takes more words, but here's, here's what I would change it to. My dad doesn't demonstrate to me in a way that I can understand that he knows when he's hurting me. And my dad doesn't demonstrate to me in a way that I can understand that he has heard and understands me when I tell him that he's hurting me. 
And that can feel like a little, you know, getting into semantics. But I think that language shift actually is vitally important because it gets really specific and really granular. And I can problem solve around that. Whereas if I just stick to my interpretations, like you're not listening to me, that's something he can respond with. Yes, I am. Here's what I heard you just say. But him hearing the words that I'm saying doesn't actually communicate that he understands the implications of what I'm saying. And ultimately, it doesn't guarantee changed behavior, which is really what I want. When I tell him he's hurting me, what I want is for him to change his behavior. And he hasn't changed his behavior when I've told him that his behavior is hurting me. Which I got to eventually in my list of what I wanted to practice accepting. I ended it with, he hasn't changed his behavior when I've told him that his behavior isn't helping, it's hurting. So I kind of circle around, even in like coming up with my list, here's what there is to accept. I list several things that aren't really facts for me to accept before I finally land on, I think, the thing that is effective for me to accept, that he hasn't changed his behavior when I've told him that his behavior isn't helping, it's hurting. And then I mentioned, uh, the one thing that I keep forgetting to practice accepting is accepting how I feel that my feelings are part of the facts of the situation. So a big, huge thank you to white supremacy, capitalism, and patriarchy for being such effective teachers on how to dissociate from my body, my emotions, and how I feel. That was sarcasm, by the way. Now, I end the recording saying that I need to beef up my boundaries so that I'm not having conversations with my dad wherein he shares how he relates to people. And (laughs) no, let's pump the brakes here for a second. I don't think that's a realistic boundary that I can set. And in the year that's passed since I made that recording, I haven't set that boundary listening back to the recording, it sounds very much like the adage, when all you have is a hammer, everything's a nail. Like I was just practicing setting boundaries and was all, let's use boundaries for everything. And I was also misusing it. Like I can't control what my dad says. I can't even control what I hear my dad say. Shit's going to come up. He's going to be sharing his perspective on how he relates to people and I'm going to hear it. That's just how <laughs> how things are going to go. Um, I think the more effective thing for me to do is to practice beefing up my sense of self. And let me say more about that because I'm kind of like mulling this over, figuring it out in real time right here. What happens is the thing that I think causes me a huge amount of distress is that the line is often really fuzzy between where my beliefs end and my dad's beliefs start, that they end up feeling kind of fused together. He'll share a thought or a belief and it occurs to me as though I'm being told this this is what I now must believe. And it's like, I can't tell that we're separate people. And I don't know if that's a symptom of derealization or depersonalization that like I kind of end up feeling like a sponge. And really what I want to practice is feeling more solid, um, like giving myself a security blanket, something that I can grab a hold of, 
when I can feel my dad's beliefs start to supersede my own, my gut reaction when that happens is to argue and try to change his mind. But the problem with that is it's not sustainable. It's fucking exhausting. It puts me in convincing mode constantly. And it means I have to be on my A game like all the time. Like I'm on debate team and I'm constantly debating and trying to poke holes in my dad's arguments, my dad's beliefs, which really is absolutely not sustainable. What I think might be sustainable is a coping thought. Something like, I don't have to take in what my dad is saying right now. Long pause. (laughs) A listener suggested that I add some like crickets or nature sounds in the background of long pauses so that you guys would know that the audio hadn't dropped out. And so this is my first attempt. Let me know if it was successful. But anyway, like I've spent quite a bit of time trying to come up with more to add to that coping thought. And I don't think there's anything else that needs to get added to it. I think it's fine. Like that's enough. I don't have to justify it. I can just say, I don't have to take this in. I don't have to absorb this. I don't really need a, like a minutes long monologue to repeat in my head. I just need a single sentence that I can repeat to myself to remind my brain that my dad is a separate person from me and that my beliefs and his beliefs are separate. I don't have to take in what my dad is saying right now. I've talked about coping thoughts on this podcast before, episode five, actually, um, and I spend most of the episode absolutely bashing affirmations and expanding on how much I hate them and why. But I do share some coping thoughts in that episode that have been really helpful. And the key, in my mind at least, is that a coping thought or an affirmation, that's going, if it's going to work for me, it needs to be something that my brain will not argue with. So it can't be me looking in a mirror and going, I am beautiful, I am successful, or whatever the fuck. Because if my brain can argue with it, my brain will actually get more entrenched in the opposite thought. And that's not helpful. So coping thoughts that I have liked using in the past and continue to like using are things like, I can survive feeling this feeling. It's really very short. And it's true. More recently, I've started using one a coping thought when I'm in a doom spiral about the future. And this is this was given to me by my therapist. It's a little longer, but it's been really, really effective. It goes like this. I do not know how the future will go. There may be outcomes, both neutral and positive, I can't conceive of yet. And I love this coping thought because it gives my brain absolutely nothing to fight with. I know I can't tell the future. Like, that's accurate. My brain forgets that sometimes, so it's a good thing to remind it. Um, But like, that's right. I'm not a fortune teller. I don't know how the future will go. (laughs) Yep, that's true. And then there's also the phrase, there may be outcomes that I can't conceive of yet. Uh, The may, the word may there is really important because it gives my brain wiggle room to allow for possibilities It's not a certainty. It's just a possibility. So there's nothing for my brain to argue with. It's been really fucking helpful because when I'm in a doom spiral, 
my brain likes to go down these very well-worn thought ruts, ruts that are so well-worn, they're basically like thought canyons. And the only way to create new thought ruts is to A, stop sending thoughts down those old canyons and making those canyons deeper. And B, start sending thoughts down a new rut to create a new deeper rut. Um, and that coping thought does that for me. It interrupts my doom spiral thought canyon. And it gives me practice in creating a new thought rut that's more in line with how I actually want my life to go. Like, I don't want to be sitting wallowing in doom. I want to be open to the possibility that I don't know how the future will go. And that there may be outcomes both neutral and positive that I can't conceive of yet. Uh Another thing I wanted to mention, one of the cool things about doing this outro a full year after the initial recording is that I can see the ways that my practice has actually been effective. Like I've been practicing accepting that my dad hasn't changed his behavior when I've told him that his behavior isn't helping, but rather it's hurting. And I don't notice like right today, I don't notice nearly as much internal resistance to that as I did a year ago. Because I've been practicing accepting that, that he hasn't changed his behavior. And I didn't talk about actu the actual process of accepting step by step in this episode. Um, I've talked about it in several other episodes. Um, but I've been practicing this for the last year. And I want to point something out. Let me find it again here. So practicing radical acceptance step by step is distress tolerance handout 11B. There's 10 steps listed. It's a, it's a process. Acceptance is not like a, an easy, like one and done sort of situation. It actually takes practice, as I've mentioned multiple times. But there's one step in particular that's been kind of life changing. It's step five here. Practice opposite action. List all the behaviors you would do if you did accept the facts. Then act as if you have already accepted the facts. Engage in the behaviors that you would do if you really had accepted. So one of the consequences of accepting that my dad has not changed his behavior when I've told him that his behavior isn't helping, but rather that it's hurting. A consequence of accepting that is that I've stopped going to my dad for emotional help. Because if I accept that my dad hasn't changed his behavior when I've told him that his help doesn't actually help, it no longer makes sense to keep going to him for help about like emotional things. And strangely, I have no judgment around that. I don't have a lot of judgment. I have some judgment, but not a lot. Like I'm not pissed off at my dad nearly as much as I was like a year ago, even. Um, it's more just what is so like, just, this is the facts. Like, <laughs> well, let's go about it with an analogy. Let's say I give my keys to my car keys to a toddler. And every time I give my car keys to that toddler, they crash it into a tree. Eventually, I'd like to think that I would get to a point where I could accept that toddlers can't drive cars. And I would stop giving my keys to toddlers. And it's not that toddlers aren't eager to try to drive. And it's not that toddlers are evil or bad for crashing into a tree. 
what's going on there is that there's a mismatch of my expectations with the reality of their skill level. If I refuse to accept that toddlers can't drive, I will continue to give my car keys to toddlers and they will continue to crash my car. But that's a thing that like, look around, pretty much everybody, with the exception of toddlers, accepts that toddlers can't drive. Like we're, people aren't going around giving their keys to toddlers because we know that they can't do this thing. We've accepted that. We're not getting up in the morning grumbling and being like, ah, maybe just this one time I'll give my keys to my toddler so I don't have to drive them to daycare and they can take themselves to daycare. Like, we don't do that because we know that that will not work out well. (laughs) Like, they do not have that skill. And I think in the case of my dad, like, he hasn't demonstrated that he has the ability to support me around emotional things which is a different statement than saying he doesn't know how. He might know how. I don't know, actually. But the thing is, he hasn't demonstrated it to me. And that's disappointing. Like, I'm bummed about it. And, of course, there's been an impact of his lack of skill in that area because, you know, he raised me. And I've been living with him for, you know, over 10 years Um, But I guess the difference is that when I practice acceptance around that, that he doesn't have that skill. I still feel bummed, but I'm not judging him as harshly, I think. And I'm not judging myself as harshly for feeling bummed. I'm not making the pain worse by holding on to the expectation that he should be able to do this thing. But he's consistently unable to meet that expectation. I don't know. I've just been noticing that over the last year as I've been practicing accepting that he doesn't have this skill that like I'm a lot less miserable (laughs) um and our relationship has certainly improved because I've stopped going to him for support around emotional things I've stopped putting him in positions where he can consistently not meet my expectations it's a work in progress and like it's a continuous practice certainly with no no ultimate destination. Like I'm never going to get to a point where I'm done. Um, I will just be constantly practicing accepting. So we'll see how it goes. Anyway, uh, thank you very much for listening. Um, it has been a pleasure to be back on the air um, and talking about therapies and shit. I've spent the last um, almost month now taking a break from my DBT skills group because my we're in between modules and my skills group leader has been on vacation and I get sloppy. <laughs> like, yeah, I just noticed that, that, that if I'm not actively like practicing skills kind of routinely, I will get sloppy and I'll forget to use things. I won't use skills as automatically. So it's useful to get back into reminding myself of, oh yeah, that's a skill I can use. Don't forget that one. The shit ain't linear. I'm annoyed by that. I really want it to be linear. Um, I really want things to be permanent. Like I've learned the skill. I'm done learning the skill. The skill has been learned. Um, it's annoying that I, it's going to be just constant, <laughs> a constant practice. So that's another thing to practice accepting. Oh, happy day. Another opportunity to practice. Woohoo. Okay. Anyway, I'm going to end it there. Um, thank you for listening. Thank you to my Patreon supporters again for supporting me and this podcast. 
Um, if you like what you hear, feel free to rate, review, subscribe, do all that fun stuff. And if you have any questions, you can hit me up on all the social media that's linked in the description. And uh, yeah, I'm just going to do my normal thing of ending this super abrupt. This has been Let's Therapize That Shit with your host, me, Joy Gerhard. If you like what you heard, please rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends about it. I'll see you next time. Intro and outro music is Swan Lake Opus 20 by Tchaikovsky, performed by the London Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Anatoly Fistulari, and released on LP by Richmond High Fidelity London Records in 1952.